Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as every week, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, Simon, well, I think there's no mistaking what's in the news this week. Perhaps uh, the first time what's going to happen with the Federal Reserve has been possibly supplanted by concerns about what's happening in Ukraine where Russian troops are still on the border with the Ukraine Eastern Front, and uh, we're all wondering what's going to happen there. Is that, do you think, the dominant factor in the markets this week, or have we still got these underlying inflation interest rate concerns? No, I think you're right. Look, it's clearly the dominant issue this week. The market's key focus is on Ukraine, and actually, as the week has progressed, we've seen a succession of developments of stories coming out of that region, often quite contradictory, and the market has reacted accordingly. So the numbers as at Friday lunchtime, certainly the first four days of the trading week, the investment company sector was down 1.4%. That actually represented a relative outperformance of the wider UK market. That was down 1.6% those first four days. But we have seen discounts widen out across the investment companies universe. Probably started the week about 3.3%. And nearer to four, four and a half percent as the week has gone on. So markets are definitely seesawing a little bit. Uh, Monday, we saw a sell off on fears of war, a bit of recovery on Tuesday, and so the week has gone on. But clearly, all eyes really on that region. And, you know, people considering the wider implications, you know, what does it mean for energy prices? What does it mean for risk assets in general? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the gold price or other safe harbours in a storm and also the impact of financial sanctions. But to your earlier point, inflation is not going away. It is one of the dominant themes, certainly when you actually talk to investment managers at the moment. I mean, the situation in Ukraine is obviously quite troubling, quite worrying, but it's something that most of them won't really have an opinion on. It's not something that for the majority of investment managers it would directly impact. However, inflation really does touch everybody. And this week, we saw the UK inflation number hit 5.5%. It's expected to peak at 7.25% in April. And uh, as I said, you know, for uh, equity managers in particular, for UK equity managers, who for the last five or six years have in every presentation had to deal with the what's the impact of Brexit, that question has kind of gone away now. But it's what's the impact on inflation on earnings. This is the kind of the dominant theme of our meetings with investment managers. And can margins be sustained? Can prices increases be passed on? Uh, and you know, are they actually seeing wage inflation come through? So quite a lot of concerns because that will obviously have a material impact on earnings, not just in the next quarter, but over a longer time period. Indeed. And so there's some, some mixed signals coming out, as you say. Just looking at the commodities, for example, I noticed the last few days that uh, uh, oil is actually down a little bit, but uh, copper is up and gold is up a little bit. Maybe gold coming into its own finally uh, hasn't reacted much to these inflation worries, but perhaps it traditionally would be a place people would go if there was uh, worries about military action or international tension of some sort, which we haven't had for a while, it has to be said. I mean, apart from the Crimea incident. And how do you think, just in general terms, I mean, from your experience, when we have these kind of military geopolitical issues... I mean, the market tends to sell off, but it's often quite temporary because it just takes time for people to work out how serious the situation is. And the economic impact of, just suppose the Russians did invade Ukraine, the economic impact of that is quite hard to tell. In kind of short term, it doesn't have that huge effect because Ukraine is such a small part of the uh, European economy. 
But, of course, there are lots of wider implications about energy prices and so on and sanctions and what the effect would be. But what are your thoughts on that sort of general theme if we things were to get, take a turn for the worse from here? Yes, and look, who knows how the market will react. But certainly when you look at history, I, mean, I remember back in uh, the first quarter of 2003 when we had the second Iraq conflict and we saw quite a significant market sell-off. But then thereafter, not long thereafter, we saw quite a strong bounce back in markets as well. There was that anticipation going back almost 20 years now, or 19 years to be more precise, that something was going to happen there and, and lo and behold it did, but there was a, a recovery in quite short order. It's interesting when you talk to the asset allocators out there, so not necessarily the investment managers whose job it is to give you UK exposure or European exposure, but those people who are looking across the piece, a number of them have been nervous for a period of time. So I'm thinking more the kind of personal assets, capital gearing, the roughers, those people of the world who can kind of move across the investment universe. The general trend has been for a period of time that there's been nervousness about the valuations on, on equities in general. And they've been quite happy to build up what they would call dry powder. That, that might be in the form of some kind of uh, you know, treasury bills, gold, liquidity or whatever it is. But equally, those type of investors always make it clear that they are willing to deploy that dry powder as and when there are significant valuation opportunities. And you do wonder if we do see a you know, significant leg down in the market, that will be enough to entice that type of investor to deploy more capital. I should just mention at this point, uh, if you're noting some uh, noises in the background, this is because we are recording this uh, in the middle of the Eunice storm. And I'm, uh, I'm afraid to say that uh, some windows are rattling because of the wind. So if you hear some background noise, not much we can do about it, I'm afraid. But uh, just to tell you that the show must go on in all weather conditions. We don't at least record it outside in the open air. That's one thing anyway. So I think I might mention at this point, uh, as it happens, quite by chance, for the uh, Moneymakers Circle, anybody who uh, subscribes to that, uh, I've actually done a survey. I've created a portfolio of uh, five of the bigger defensive investment trusts, so that including rougher personal assets, capital gearing, and so on. I've also thrown in uh, RIT, which is not quite in the same category, and BH Macro. See how they would have performed over the last five years in general terms, because it does seem a good moment to look at those. And I've also uh, compared the way they allocate their money. And as you say, they have become more defensive in the last few months for various reasons. So that uh, might be of interest to people. We've also got a profile of Henderson Smaller Companies, a trust that uh, has uh, performed very steadily and consistently over, over many years. So that's in the moneymaker circle. But uh, coming back to today, on the point about military action, if you go back to the Gulf War as well, where it was an all-out war involving the United States and the UK and others, that uh, did lead to a big sell-off, but uh, quickly reversed when it became apparent that it was going to be a short, sharp war, not a lasting one. Uh, but here, this is more, you know, if the Russians do invade, one has to imagine it's going to be more of a kind of guerrilla warfare type situation where that situation is going to continue for a while. There'll be sanctions, there'll be talk about things that might happen. So it's, it's uncertainty more than anything else, I think, about rather than the necessarily the economic impact. Obviously, a bigger concern about gas imports into Europe. What will Europe do if uh, the Russians do invade Ukraine? Will they try and stop exports of gas, which will be at some considerable cost uh, economically, or will they uh, take a more benign line? Lots of things to be concerned about. But in the meantime... We press on with news from the investment trust sector, and we're going to kick off with some corporate news, and we're going to talk about Crystal Amber Fund, ticker CRS, which I think we know is probably on the way out, but perhaps you can uh, bring us up to date on that one, Simon. So we, we've talked about this one in months gone by. So basically, Crystal Amber failed its continuation vote last year, 
and they made an announcement that they were going to look at that and put proposals to shareholders. We now know that there will be a general meeting on the 7th of March in connection with those proposals, and that's for a change of investment policy and a new management and incentive fee. So essentially, they're looking to go into a managed wind-down process with the idea being that they will look to realise predominantly all of their assets. Uh, There's probably one exception. And the idea is that that process is completed by the end of 2023, so the end of next year. The one exception is a company called GI Dynamics and actually own 81% of that particular company. So that might need a little bit of thought. But just covering off Crystal Amber, it's a very, very concentrated portfolio. They hold some large stakes in some relatively well-known companies like Delarue. They own 9% of that company. Allied Mines, 18%. A company called Hurricane Energy, they own 29%. Or certainly in relative recent times, they did. So it may take a little bit of work in terms of realising these assets. They've also made it clear that they will look to return about £40 million, which is equivalent to 50p per share, by the end of June this year. So there'll obviously be a process here. But this is all subject to a shareholder vote on the 7th of March. All right, just remind us, this trust is not uh, that small. It's uh, not necessarily unviable. But uh, you can remind us what the uh, net assets of this particular trust is. But the reason it's uh, they're having to put forward these proposals is because the performance has been pretty poor over the medium term, I think. Yeah, no, performance has not been strong on this one, I think it's fair to say. So just to put some numbers around that, over the last five years, NAV total return is actually down about 28%. I mean, we've got them in the UK small cap subsector. And to give you some kind of comparison, the FTSE small cap index uh, ex-investment companies is up 45% during that time. So that's a, a marked underperformance, certainly, of that index. So that's been an issue. And the fact they've had some more activist shareholders build up positions in their register, and, and, and one or two of those have made it clear that they were not minded to support continuation. It might be worth making the point here that this is actually a good example of one of the reasons why we like investment trusts is that you know, this week we saw the uh, annual survey from the uh, financial advisors uh, Best Invest, who point out how many uh, open-ended funds, in other words, not investment trusts, but uh, unit trusts and OICs and so on, how much money is in uh, remains in open-ended funds that have consistently underperformed for at least three years. And the numbers are quite startling. I mean, there's a very large uh, amount of money sitting there, earning a lot of fees for the investment managers, but uh, not necessarily in any risk of going out of business. Whereas in the investment trust sector, we do see boards taking this decision or shareholders putting pressure on boards to make a decision to do with an underperforming trust. So uh, I guess uh, it's always sad to say goodbye to an investment trust. But uh, if you've got that kind of track record, I don't suppose you can be surprised. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think the trend over the last 10 years, if not longer, frankly, are for boards to be more proactive in terms of underperforming uh, investment trust companies. It's not the case, and neither should it be, that if you have an instance where an investment company underperforms for, say, a three-year period, that it should automatically be wound up or merged or whatever it is, because there might be a very good reason why that is the case, You know, particularly if, say, the style of the manager's approach was just out of favour in that particular period. But the fact that you do have uh, independent boards in place Keep an eye on that kind of thing, uh, challenging the managers. And as you mentioned as well, this idea of shareholders and not just out and out activist shareholders, but even very supportive long term shareholders. And I think we've talked in the past about some of the uh, wealth managers, for instance, who would certainly fit into that category, but are increasingly prepared to challenge boards of investment trust companies where performance has been a bit lacklustre. 
and made it clear that this is something that should be addressed. So I think there is some good kind of following wins for investment trusts while you do see this kind of natural rationalization process. Yeah, and just to finish up on those numbers, I mean, the numbers in the Best Invest survey are quite striking, and these are only from a number of sectors in the open-ended universe, and they report something like £45 billion worth of investor money tied up in open-ended funds that have underperformed consistently every year for at least the last three years. And uh, they're still earning the managers a total of £463 million a year in fees, which is uh, a pretty significant chunk of money. And you know, there's no real incentive for the managers of these funds to do anything about it as long as the unit holders don't vote with their feet. And even if they do, uh, they still tend to plough on for quite a long time. So I think we'll score that one as a win for the investment trust sector structure. Moving on, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, ticker JEFI, which uh, launched a few years ago to specialise in these uh, more exotic emerging markets. Uh, what's the story from them this week? Well, they've published a circular this week with proposals to amend their annual redemption facility. So we already knew about this. In fact, we talked about this one uh, relatively recently, but it requires shareholder approval. So just to remind people, the frequency of the redemption facility will change. As I mentioned, it was annual. It's going to move to triennial. So the idea every three years and the actual level of redemption will fall from 100%. So at the moment, there's a kind of full liquidity opportunity every year in June as it happens, and that will be reduced to 20%, so 20% every three years. So quite a shift uh, in the goalposts. What they're also going to introduce is a triennial continuation vote to coincide with that redemption facility. And in fact, the next redemption will be in June 2024, so in other words, in, in a couple of years hence. As I mentioned, those proposals are all subject to shareholder approval and there will be a general meeting on the 10th of March. And in fact, they're going to hold a continuation vote at that meeting as well. So the effect of this is to essentially make sure that Jupiter Emerging and Frontier has another, at least another two years of trading so that performance can be assessed over that period. Remind us, though, why they moved to what they had before, which is relatively unusual, I think, which is to have an annual redemption facility and the ability to... Uh, redeem up to 100%. So, in, you know, if they had a bad year, in theory, the whole shebang could have gone in one go. But I'm right in saying that that kind of arrangement was relatively unusual. And so this is perhaps more typical of the kind of redemption facilities you'll, uh, you'll now be seeing around the place. Is, is that right? So you're right. It's a relatively unusual uh, mechanism within the investment companies universe. There are a number of investment trusts that do have a similar arrangement in place with diverse income, Gervais Williams Fund, we're going to come on and talk about that one as it happens. There's also a microcap fund in the Mighton Stable uh, and I think Ashoka India Equity. But aside from that, though those kind of annual redemption facilities are few and far between because obviously it can, and it has in the case of Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, see quite substantial redemptions at perhaps points in the cycle where it doesn't really work. I should actually also mention BlackRock Frontiers as well that doesn't have an annual redemption facility, but every five years shareholders can there is a 100% liquidity event subject to shareholder approval. So they have a not dissimilar mechanism. But the trouble as Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income have found is that last year, so in June 2021, uh, they had a situation where 30% of the share capital was redeemed. At that point, they shrank down to pretty much where they are at the moment, actually, which is a market cap of about £61 million. And the issue for them, as, as the chairman has addressed on a number of occasions, is that it just becomes suboptimal around that size. So anything under £100 million in size becomes difficult. 
uh, for people to invest in. It has issues in terms of the costs of running the investment companies, uh, liquidity in the secondary market, the spreads that you'll find on the share price. Uh, and so that's the reason why they're looking to, to make the change. Perhaps unsurprisingly, when it was originally announced, these proposals, and that was back in January, we saw the fund derated. It was probably on about an 8% discount or so at the time. It moved out to a 14% discount. Just more recently, in the last few weeks, it has kind of crept in a little bit to an 11% discount. And it will be interesting to see how shareholders react to the proposals on the 10th of March. Is there a reason, just uh, picking up on this, is there any significance in the fact that the kind of trusts which have gone for annual redemption, the small number that do, they're all, well, perhaps diverse is a slight exception, but they're either microcap or frontier markets. So these are, these are trusts which you would not expect to become too large in, in scale anyway. But is there any uh, logical correlation between the fact that they're quite small, relatively liquid perhaps, uh, and relatively high risk trusts? Yeah, I think the way I would look at it is that when you come to launch an investment trust company, one of the discussions that you have to have with potential investors is how you're going to alleviate the discount risk. Because the best one in the world, there's always the chance that an investment trust company will trade at a share price below the NAV. Now, if the underlying asset base is illiquid, so you're talking, say, a renewable energy infrastructure, there's very little you can do about it in terms of kind of putting in a regular liquidity event, a tender offer or buybacks, because essentially, you know, property would be the same thing. There are illiquid assets. And unless you run a cash buffer, it can become quite difficult. However, if you're investing in a, a pool of quoted equities, as is the case for Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, that's less of a consideration because, um, I mean, they have got some less liquid holdings in there, but there will be quite a degree of liquidity. So for a recent launch, and this Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income would have been launched not that many years ago, I think 2015 rings a bell, you would have had to put some relatively strict discount control mechanism or target in there. I think the full annual redemption, the full liquidity event, very few investment companies have gone down that route perhaps because of the experience that we're now seeing with due to emerging and frontier income. However, a number have introduced discount targets of, say, 5% or put in tender offers uh, with some degree of regularity. So you have to put something in, basically, in the structure. So we'll see how that one works out. It'll be interesting to see whether the shareholders are going to vote for that or not. Let's move on and talk about um, Honeycomb Investment Trust, ticker H-O-N-Y. Uh, perhaps you can tell us what they've said and fill us in on the background of that one. Yeah, now this was an interesting development. So the kind of developing story this week is that the board of Honeycomb Investment Trust announced that it had reached agreement on an all-share combination with Pollen Street Capital Holdings, which is in fact its investment manager. So the idea is that the businesses will be combined, so the investment company and the investment manager combined, into what's known as a premium listed commercial company. In other words, Honeycomb Investment Trust will no longer be an investment trust. Now, shareholders representing 56% of Honeycomb's existing share capital have given their support, indicated their support. Um, uh, shareholders in Pollen Street, so that's a lot of the investment managers, they will be entitled to receive new shares equivalent to about 45, 46% of the new entity. And that was valued at £285 million at the share price just prior to the announcement. Now, Pollen Street has assets under management of about £3 billion, or it certainly did at the end of December. And uh, in 2021, it generated revenue just below £34 million in that year and had an EBITDA, so uh, basically profits of £7 million. 
So the combination is obviously subject to shareholder approval and it's expected to close in the second quarter uh, of this year. So in other words, by the end of June. So this is a slightly unusual development, as you say. I, I can't think of a particularly similar example, but maybe you can. Uh, but I guess the main issue here then is that because they're going to end up with a significant uh, shareholding in the in this entity would be whether or not the terms are fair. Would that be right? That's something presumably the board has looked at. How would they go about uh, assessing that, do you think? They'd have to put a multiple on the earnings of Pollard Street, presumably, and, and, and so on. How do you think that might work out? You're absolutely right. I mean, there's a few issues. There. I, I can't think of an instance when an investment manager has rolled into an existing investment company. I mean, we're aware of some investment transfer investment companies where there is a stake in the investment manager. And obviously, we've talked about Linzel Train Investment Trust on a number of occasions that has a stake in Linzel Train, the actual manager, but never an instance like this. I mean, in terms of the valuation of Pollen Street, you know, it's a very good point. And, and the chairman of uh, Honeycomb Investment Trust is obviously independent of the investment manager. So, well, they've gone through the process and they've looked at it and all the rest of it. But that will clearly be the big question for a number of existing shareholders. You know, is that the right value? Uh, does the deal make sense? And it's worth noting that the share price of Honeycomb just prior to the announcement was 967p, spot five to be precise. It's now 12% lower. So I've got it on my screen at 855p, so down 12%, as I mentioned, which suggests to me Certainly, the market is looking at this and probably a little bit wary of the deal and possibly questioning the value that they've applied to uh, the business of Pollen Street. I mean, it's an interesting company in itself. I mean, it was founded in 2013, so not that many years ago. And it's a specialist investment manager. It's, it's what it describes itself as kind of multi-asset, multi-strategy. But effectively, it's investing in private equity and credit strategies. Honeycomb Investment Trust is very much on the, on the credit tack. And, you know, £3 billion in nine years is not insubstantial. Obviously, Honeycomb is, is part of that number as well. It's worth noting. And in terms of the revenue going forward, then that will be the interest income generated from Honeycomb's uh, existing investments. And then in addition to that, you'll have the fees from Pollen Street as well. So, as I say, it's, it's a really interesting deal. The share price would suggest it's not been well received by the market at the moment but they have got 56% of the existing shareholder base who've indicated their support. Yeah, so that is un unusual and interesting. Uh, raises lots of questions for those who are involved in this. But just, to, just on the background, I mean, why have we reached this point? Is that because Honeycomb has been a relatively poor performer or what's the sort of background in this particular case? And Pollen Street have, have had some involvement elsewhere in the investment trust sector in the past, have they not? No, that's right. I mean, just to kind of cover off the numbers for Honeycomb, well, I mean, they've been derated as a result of this announcement, but just ahead of that derating, they were probably trading on a, a small discount. Over the past 12 months, they've averaged about a 6% discount. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about the debt funds in general on these podcasts, but the direction of travel in recent years has been to see outflows or manage wind downs or, or mergers or takeovers. So the debt sector had its moment in the sun, certainly in terms of investment companies, probably five or six years ago. And then in more recent years, there has been money coming out of it, certainly no new money raised. I mean, within that honeycomb, probably one of the better rated ones, it's got a market cap of about 314 million. So it's it's a kind of decent size and it's yield on a historic basis. And I emphasize a historic basis is, is 9%. So it certainly does have a high yield. But yeah, in some ways, I mean, how would you look at this? I mean, you could argue that this is like what's known as a SPAC deal. Um, these kind of specialist acquisition vehicles that you see in the US. And without getting too technical, it's the idea is 
their existing public coated vehicles and then businesses kind of get reversed into them so private companies get reversed into them and it's almost it's not quite like that because clearly honeycomb has got an existing mandate which will continue but to a, a less or less important extent so you know who knows exactly where they've got to with this but it's one i think that's unusual and clearly not uh without its controversies indeed so that's another interesting one to watch. Well, we've certainly had a lot of uh, curiosities coming up this week, things that are slightly out of the ordinary. And there's also this week been a further development in the saga involving Third Point Investors, the uh, hedge fund group uh, managed by Dan Loeb. And uh, this is news that broke uh, just about at the time we were doing this recording. So uh, tell us, what is the news there, Simon? Yeah, well, it's uh, quite a significant development, to be honest. So the board of Third Point have come out and they've announced changes to the boards. If you remember, uh, the last news we had on this was they've been requisitioned by asset value investors and, and a few other shareholders with the proposal that a chap called Richard Burley join the board as an independent director. So the announcement today is that the board have said, yeah, we're going to put Richard on the board and uh, Vivian Gold, who's also an experienced investment trust director, will join. And Richard Dory, who is an existing board director, he will step up to become the chairman. So as a result of that, the requisition, so asset value investors and the two or three other uh, investors, they've withdrawn that requisition. So there will no longer be uh, a general meeting. So that would seem to be a positive development. Uh, basically, the board uh, has listened to shareholders and made changes and built that board out. And is it uh, too soon to talk about the share price reaction? I mean, it's only just come out of this news as we're talking. So perhaps it is a bit early. So how would we interpret this? I think we'd interpret this that obviously, if you like the dissident shareholders have won up to a point, but their whole campaign was designed for a purpose, which was to try and get the discount on this trust to come in. Uh, do you think this will be enough? I mean, if the board has still got to decide what to do about that, and obviously um, that could go either way from here. Yes. I mean, I'm just looking at the share price, actually. It's gone up marginally, about uh, 1% or so, but still very early days, obviously. I suspect most people will see this as a positive development. The fact that you've got two additional directors on the board that are, are well-known across the investment companies sector and recognised for being independent, I, I think will be seen as a good move. And I think we've gone through a sequence of letters and announcements that really haven't really moved the story on. And I think this feels that people are now starting to listen to each other and have put measures, or in this case, people in places that they can start to have some hard discussions. I mean, what it doesn't mean is that the discount will just narrow in in short order. I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think changing the nature of the board, I think will allow uh, people to just have some grown up discussions. And it'd be interesting to see how this one develops over the over the months ahead. Indeed it will. So that's uh, interesting late news for us. In a way, it's like disappointing not to have any more of these splendid letters that come out rather uh, exciting and full of strong adjectives. But uh, I think it probably will be seen as a, as a positive development, as you say, and uh, perhaps moving the corporate governance there onto a basis which is... Uh, shareholders are more comfortable with anyway than in the past. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. Again, as we said, there hasn't been much fundraising given the markets have been uh, as choppy and as nervous as they have been. But uh, Impact Healthcare, REIT, ticker IHR, has managed to raise a little bit of money. Tell us how they got on with their planned funding. Yes, well, they announced this week that they'd raised £40 million. That was via the issue of just over 35 million shares at a price of 114p per share. That represented about a 1.4% premium to its NAV. Now, they had been targeting about £50 million, so a little bit under that. 
but it's north of the last time they came to the market. So they were last raised money back in May of last year, at which stage they raised £35 million. But the proceeds of the fundraising will be used to fund a significant proportion of their near-term investment pipeline. Um, they had given some colour on that. Apparently, they were in advanced legal discussions of about £69 million worth of acquisitions. So obviously, this money will go some way to support that. And I think they'll also look to probably bring down their credit facility as well, which stood at £68 million just ahead of that. But it's interesting. We have seen a number of specialist property funds raise money so far this year. I mean, LXI REITs, I think we talked about a week or two ago, and that certainly was successful. That raised £250 million, and that was north of what they wanted. But aside from that, the general trend has been for these property companies just to come in under what they're targeting. So residential secure income, they were looking for £20 million. They came in at £15 million. Aberdeen uh, European Logistics Income. Uh, they didn't give a target, to be fair to them, but they came at £38 million sterling, which I suspect was probably just a little bit uh, under what they were looking for. So it, it suggests to me, at least, that the fundraising conditions for some of these specialist property funds are, are becoming a little bit more difficult. Indeed. And do you think that might have anything to do with the rates of inflation we're seeing? Because one of the strengths of these kind of specialist property trusts is that they do have a degree of inflation linkage in their business models. But I guess if inflation, they don't normally... Uh, allow for full capture of inflation at 7% anyway, certainly typically around 4% is the is the cap. Do you think that's a factor or is it just uh, perhaps there's a bit of surfeit of these things around at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I mean when we talked about LXI a week or two earlier, I mean, the fact that they are very much inflation linked, albeit they will be capped out, that undoubtedly would have helped their uh, fundraising efforts. But I think in general, when markets are choppy and there's nervousness out there and, you know, clearly whatever happens geopolitical risk, all the rest of it should have very, very limited, if, if anything at all, on something like impact healthcare REIT. But I think just that general market, uh, nervousness of markets, I think it makes a more difficult environment for fundraising in general. You know, there's just a little bit too much noise, there's too many distractions going on. So I, I don't think that's particularly helpful. So, you, you know, you might be right, there might be a surfeit of paper out there as well. We've certainly seen that before. But um, yeah, it might be an interesting month or so ahead on the fundraising front. So just to finish off on this one, the Impact Healthcare. So that was the announcement. Uh, how are the shares performing? And uh, I mean, they've traded at a small premium for most of their life since they were launched five years ago. But um, what does it look like now? And what is the yield you're getting on, on that particular trust? Yeah, so I've got them on my screen about 113p at the moment. So that's just, as I said, they raised the money 114p. So it's drifted off a little bit. But then, as I've said, markets have been a little bit choppy in the last few days. I mean, their yield on a historic basis is 5.7%. So that probably puts them a little bit north of some of the more kind of general commercial property names. Certainly, if you look at the UK commercial, just the more kind of generalist property funds, the average yield is about, let's be generous, about 4.8%. So you get a little bit of a, a pickup on that. Okay, so now we can move on to talk about some results. That's all the only fundraising this week. And we're going to kick off with the Brunner Investment Trust, ticker BUT. This is another investment trust that started out effectively as a family office for the Brunner family, who sold their chemicals company to form ICI back in the 1920s. I think I'm right about that. But anyway, it's now managed by uh, Allianz. And uh, what do the results look like? So these were final results for the year ended 30th of November 2021, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 21.5%. Now that compared with 21.1% for their composite index, which is 70% FTSE World X UK and 30% FTSE All Share. So that's the UK component. 
and that represented the third consecutive year of outperformance. The earnings per share came in, actually the earnings per share was up 27.5%. And this is starting to become a familiar theme with a number of these uh, equity investment trusts that obviously we have seen quite a big pickup in earnings in 2021. Um, Earnings per share totaled 20.4p for Brunner in this period. And their total dividend was 20 spot 15p. In other words, it was covered and that was up 0.4%, which meant they have delivered 50 consecutive years of dividend increases. So not only are they an AIC dividend hero, but they've managed to achieve that for 50 consecutive years, which I'm sure they will be rightly proud of. Uh, Matthew Tillett of Allianz Global Investors is responsible for this one. Very much a kind of quality at a reasonable price type approach. Uh, 60, 63 holdings or so in the portfolio. Okay. And how does that one trade? Yeah, I've got it on a discount of about 4% or so at the moment. I mean, it's a reasonable size, market cap about 460 million uh, and a yield just below 2%. So that's it in the global sector. Let's move on and talk about a Scottish American known as Saints, uh, ticker S-A-I-N. Tell us about this one. This is unusual given the normal style of its, uh, its manager. So tell us about Saints. Well, these were annual results for the year to the end of December, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 21.5%, and that compared to a rise of 20% for the FTSE All World Index. Uh, in share price terms, not quite as good, actually. Share price total return came in at 19.5%, but the fund has traded on a premium for a lot of that year, I think for all of that year, actually, and raised £63 million from new share issuance. They sit in the, as you mentioned, in the global equity income, so the dividends are an important part of the story here. And their total dividend for 2021 came in at 12.675p. Now, that represented a 5.6% increase on their previous financial year and actually the 48th consecutive year of increase. So not quite Brunner's 50, but not too far behind it, actually. Earnings per share were up as well, 6.6%. So that came in at 12.79p. So again, it's a covered dividend. And interesting, in terms of the increase in the earnings per share, up about 6 or 7%, as I mentioned, but probably less of a rise that you see for some of the other equity income names in general. And I'm sure the investment managers would argue that represents their kind of quality growth uh, investment style. We'll come on and talk about that in a second. But in this particular year, the strong performers in the equity portfolio included names such as uh, Novo Norsk and Silicon Motion. They've actually also picked up some infrastructure names as well, including things such as BBI Global Infrastructure, which sits within the investment company's world, and also other holdings such as Azura, Turner, and they also own Greencoat UK Wind as well. But this portfolio, this investment trust, also has a property portfolio. And that property portfolio actually also did very well in 2021. They generated a 25% return. That represented a 9% outperformance of the MSCI UK quarterly property index. And so that certainly helped funds in the year. The other kind of key point to note here is that they've had a 25-year debenture, £80 million, and it's uh, maturing in April, which I'm sure will set a few champagne corks a-popping, not least because it's got an 8% coupon on it, which 25 years ago, no doubt, probably looked quite good value. It's looked less good over recent years. So they've already lined up some long-term private placement debt, again, £80 million to replace that debenture but what it means is that overall cost of borrowings will fall to below 3% per annum. So that's good news in terms of their earnings and their dividend and all the rest of it. But to your point earlier, this is managed by James Down, Toby Ross uh, of Bailey Gifford. Obviously, Bailey Gifford are very much known to be growth investors. But this portfolio is quite different from 
some of its global stablemates, so Scottish Mortgage uh, amongst. And it's uh, certainly in terms of the equity portfolio, it's very much on high quality companies that have the ability to grow their dividends. So it's growth, but it's looking at the growth in earnings and therefore dividends. That's really where they're focused. So in relative terms, this one obviously is doing slightly better than some of the other Bailey Given Trusts, which are much more, uh, if you like, kind of pure growth uh, approach. How long have Bailey Given been running this one? It's not that long they've been running this one. I think it's a, a few years. Um, how was it managed before that? Can you remember who uh, who managed it before it went to move to Bailey Given? I, I always like it when you put me on the spot. I'm going to say that Bailey Given were appointed at the start of 2004. You can correct me. I'm sure you're going to push your button and tell me I've got that wrong. And before that... It was managed by First State, who took it on from Ivory and Syme without kind of getting into an investment trust history lesson. Uh, but suffice to say, Bailey Gifford had been running this one now for quite a few years. Indeed. OK, I think you're right about that, but we can check it. We may have to go to VAR on that one uh, <laughs> just to double check it. So another good example, though, of this, uh, the fact how some of these uh, veteran investment trusts have been going a long time, how I think Brunner's another one in case, which has also repaid some debentures earlier, which have been a drag on their performance because they took out this debt in, on a long-term basis back in the 1990s, typically, when everybody thought, that <laughs> how foolish can you be, that uh, 7 or 8% was a good rate of interest to pay on your borrowings. How wrong that was. Let's move on then and talk about another investment trust that has a long record of dividend increases. We're going to talk about City of London Investment Trust, ticker CTY, which is almost the granddaddy of the uh, dividend heroes in the AIC list. Um, that's obviously a UK trust rather than a global trust, and it's managed by Job Curtis of Janice Henderson. How do you do in the last period we're talking about here? Well, these were interim results for the six months to the end of December, in which time they outperformed, actually. The NAV total return came in at 6.9%. You can compare that against the FTSE All Share. That was up 6.5%. In share price terms, not quite as good. Um, they were up 3.5% as the shares moved from a small premium to a small discount. But they still managed to issue a few new shares at a premium rating in the period, raising just short of about £4 million. But essentially, the stock selection and the gearing which stood about 8% at the end of last year, were positive uh, contributors to relative performance. Names that did well for Job in the period were it was Tesco's, it was William Morris, it was uh, Relix, Microsoft and St. James's Place. Some of the detractors, well, M&G, not quite so good in this six-month period. Uh, and a company called Le François de Joux, I hope I pronounced that correctly, which apparently is the French national lottery operator, again, struggled a little bit in that period. But looking at the revenue earnings per share, a uh, very important part of the story with City London Investment Trust, they came in at 8 spot 94p. That was 23% ahead of the same period last year. So you just get this idea of the UK market in general really picking up in terms of dividend payments and City of London obviously benefiting from that. They've declared uh, two dividends of 4.8p each in respect of that six-month period. And, and perhaps more importantly, the board is confident that it will be able to increase its annual dividend for the 56th consecutive year, which again is quite some record if they manage to achieve that. So I guess looking at those numbers you've given me, the dividend weren't quite covered by earnings, but uh, they're getting much closer to where they were. So they've had to draw on reserves for, again, I imagine for, uh, but that's uh, one of the strengths of the investment trust said, you can see through these bad periods uh, by calling on reserves and uh, the City of London rolls on impressively for its uh, 56th consecutive year of dividend increases. Uh, just in terms of its performance and its rating, I mean, you mentioned it's been sort of in and out of a premium discount uh, 
during the course of the year, but uh, it normally trades pretty close to par, am I right? And what sort of dividend are you getting on this uh, worthy long-term performer? So I've got it on about a 1% premium at the moment, and actually that's broadly in line with its average over the, the previous 12 months. It does tend to trade around NAV, and they've issued a number of shares actually over recent years uh, to ensure that that premium rating doesn't get too extended. In terms of their yield on a historic basis, that yield based on the share price at the moment is 4.7%. So just a little bit off 5%, but uh, you know, quite a high yield. And that compares with an average for the UK equity income peer group on a weighted average basis, something of 3.7%. So it's it's on the on the right side of that average. In terms of the performance, well, over five years, the NAV total return comes in at 25%. And that compares with 27% for the FTSE all share. So just a little behind over five years. And again, probably about 1% behind over a three-year period as well. And I guess the final thing to mention about this particular trust is that it's pretty cheap to own. In other words, the management fees are pretty low. I mean, you get steady, never a particularly exciting performance, but you've got a decent yield. And uh, the low management fee obviously contributes if you're talking in terms of uh, percentages. So what, what is the figure you've got for the cost of this one? On an ongoing charge, and this is based on its 2021 financial year, but it came in at 0.38%. So that would certainly put it on, on the lower end of its peers and, and you know probably one of the cheaper investment trusts overall. Very good. OK, so let's move on to talk about Diverse Income Trust, ticker DIVI. We mentioned that already as being a trust that has a redemption facility. Um, but what are its results look like? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of November. In that time, they generated an NAV total return. It was down 3.8%. And that compared with its benchmark, which was up 1.1%. In share price terms, also a little bit further down, they were down 5.9%. And effectively, they moved from a premium rating of about 0.6% to a small discount. But the relative performance essentially was a function of the fact that UK large caps outperformed in that period versus small caps. Now, diverse income trusts managed by Gervais, Williams and Martin Turner of Premier Might and Investors. And they've got a kind of all cap approach to investment in the UK market, though their kind of background is very much on the UK small cap side. And so they do have a bias, I would suggest, to that area of the market that probably acted as a detractor in the period. And, and names that didn't work for them would include companies such as CMC Markets, AO World and Avacta, which were subject to profit taking, although they did benefit from William Morris and River Mercantile and Drax Group. But as the name would suggest, there is an income element to this investment trust and their revenue return per share for that six month period came in at 2.2p. That was up from 1.77p in the first half of 2021. And that was a reflection of a number of companies resuming their dividend payments. So the actual dividends that Diverse Income Trust paid out to its shareholders, that totaled 1.8p in the period. And that was an increase from 1.75p for the equivalent period in 2021. And, And the guidance from the board is they expect to at least maintain their full year financial year dividend. And does the fact that they have this redemption facility, does that actually help to keep the shares trading uh, close to par? I mean, it's a smaller company's trust, as you say, mainly, not totally. So you wouldn't normally expect it to trade around par or at a premium. But what's, uh, what's been the experience? No, it, it tends to be quite well rated, actually. So I've got it on a 2% premium at, at the moment. It's averaged in the previous 12 months a 1% premium rating again, although obviously the rating will move around a little bit. I mean, it's a decent size investment trust, over 400 million, 413 million market cap at the moment. But I would suggest that um, obviously that annual redemption facility is not unimportant, but also the track record of this one 
um, has certainly helped it. So if you look at the NAV total return numbers over five years, they're up 47% compared with 27% for the FTSE All Shares. There is a, a marked outperformance coming through. And I'm sure the investment managers would say that's a reflection of their stock selection, you know, really driving those numbers. In, in yield terms, on a historic basis, their yield is about 3.3% at the moment. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Polar Capital Global Financials, ticker PCFT, uh, which, as we know, has been benefiting from uh, the change in the market environment and has raised some money recently. What are their annual results look like? Yeah, so annual results to the end of November. NAV total return, that was up 27.9%. That compared with a rise of 27% for the MSCI All Country World Index Financials Index. And share price terms did a little bit better, actually. Share price total return up 29.7%. And their total dividend for the year has been maintained at 4.4p. So in terms of what worked for them in that 12-month period, well, actually, stock selection, funnily enough, was negative but they got some relative outperformance coming through from their gearing and uh, being overweight US regional banks. But again, I think as we talked about relatively recently, this investment trust has really seen a turnaround in demand as frankly its mandate has become more relevant in a interest rate possibly rising environment that we've now entered. So to go back to the start of this period, they were sitting with net assets of about 166 million. By the end, the net assets were coming in at 457 million. And that was a, a function of fact, obviously, it performed, but they raised additional capital just short of 240 million. Um, so this one has really kind of bounced back in terms of relevance. But 70 odd holdings, Nick Brind, John Yakis, and George Barrow, uh, Polar Capital, very experienced team. And it's an interesting portfolio, 64% in banks, 14% in insurance and uh, diversified financials. And they've got a few other bits and pieces as well in there. But if you want a kind of good insight into uh, inflation and interest rate rises and how that really works for the financial sector, then it's probably worth reading the chairman's report on this one because they go into all this in detail and set out the thesis why this is going to benefit the fund's portfolio. Indeed, and that's very relevant in the current market context. Okay, we'll move on to talk about Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust, ticker SBSI, which came to the market last year had a bit of a struggle getting off the launch pad, I think. But uh, tell us what they reported so far. Yeah, so this was an update to the marketplace, actually. Basically, uh, I think they actually their IPO, if memory serves me right, was at the, at the end of 2020. It was December 2020, just ahead of Christmas. And then they raised a bit more money in November last year. So they're now fully committed. The proceeds are now being deployed effectively. And they've uh, more recently made three new commitments. So Within their debt for social enterprises asset class, they've acquired a stake in the Community Investment Fund that that had a transaction value of about four and a half million pounds or so. They made a follow-on investment of five million pounds in the MAN GPM RI Community Housing Fund, and that's in their high-impact housing asset class. Uh, and again, in their debt for social enterprises asset class, um, they've made an increase in their allocation to the charity bond portfolio, which is managed by Rathbones. So all the capital has now been deployed. Okay, and which sector does this one sit in? Obviously, it's, uh, uh, I think, was designed to appeal to those who are interested partly in ESG, but also in uh, trusts that can make a measurable positive social impact, uh, as its name suggests. Uh, so where do they sit, though? How do you classify them? Yeah, we've got them in the flexible investment subsector, you know, obviously, they're doing something quite different, as you just outlined, from a number of the funds in that area. And to be honest, flexible investments, I mean, there's some very worthy investment trust companies in that area. But equally, it's a place where other funds that have no uh, obvious place to go might end up. Let's put it that way. So within flexible investments, you've got Ruffer, RIT, 
capital partners, personal assets, capital gearing, trust names like that, Caledonia. But then you've got some more esoteric mandates. And the fact that Schroeder, BSC or Big Society Capital Social Impact Trust can invest in social housing, can invest in charity bonds, can get involved in what they call social contracts, means that they are quite diversified in terms of their portfolio, which is why they ended up there. And in terms of the share price, I mean, how does it compare to the price they did the placing at in uh, November? So when they last raised money, which was, as I mentioned, November last year, the placing was done at 105p per share. I've got the price on my screen at the moment, 100 spot 5p. Uh, so it's come off a little bit since then. Okay, so let's move on then and quickly uh, pick up some other specialist results, uh, including trusts involved in the uh, renewable energy and infrastructure space. Uh, but before we do that, let's just quickly mention Gabelli Merger Plus Plus, ticker GMP. Only mentioning this because you remember there was a, a lot of drama last year involving uh, another Gabelli fund, which uh, eventually disappeared from view. The Gabelli Value Plus Plus, after quite a long protracted bit of argy-bargy between the managers and the shareholders and the board. But tell us about Gabelli Merger Plus Plus. It's a pretty small trust, but uh, just tell us what they've had to say. Yeah, these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 6.7% and actually a share price total return of 29.8%. So this particular fund focuses on merger arbitrage, which is a, a kind of hedge fund strategy. And the key contributors to performance in that six-month period included Kansas City Southern, Alexian Pharmaceuticals, RR Donnelly & Sons, Slack Technologies, IHS Market and BHP Group. And I don't suppose many of the listeners own shares in this one, but if they do, you might want to have a look at that. It does something slightly out of the ordinary. But there's no danger of this one of going the same way as Gabelli Value Plus Plus, I think. Is that right, Simon? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable assumption. I mean, it's not a huge fund, it's fair to say. It's got a market cap of about £68 million, and the investment manager owns a big stake in it. I think they own 50% of the shares. Um, it's also worth noting that this really trades. I mean, I'm just looking at the trading history year to day. I'm not sure a share has traded. So quite illiquid, to be perfectly honest. OK, so let's uh, move on then and talk about something which is not quite so illiquid, and that is the JLEN Environmental Assets Group, ticker JLEN. So they presumably have had uh, an NAV update or something similar. That's right. This was a, an NAV as at the end of last year, and that came in at 100 spot 7p. That represented an increase of 2.3p from the end of September. So we're looking at Q4 updates now for a lot of these renewable energy infrastructure plays. So basically what happened for JLEN in this time is that they saw the increase and that was a reflection of the uh, upward revision of power prices and certainly the assumptions underlying those um, and also actually reflected some actual fixed price arrangements. So basically they're benefiting from the increase in power prices. They also announced an interim dividend of 1.7p per share for that final quarter of last year. And that's in line with their dividend target of 6.8p per share for the year, for their financial year to the 31st of March. The board reiterated its expectation of meeting that full year dividend target. OK, well, we might compare some of the ratings of these in a moment, but uh, let's move on and take the uh, Renewables Infrastructure Group next. That's TRIG, T-R-I-G, and they've put out an annual report. Yeah, so annual results for the year to the end of December last year. The NAV total return in that period was up 9.5%. And again, that reflected near-term power prices and inflation. So really two good following tailwinds there. Their overall energy production was actually down, though. So it was down about 12.6% below 
budget and that was a reflection of historically low wind resource so i think as we talked about on a number of occasions which is ironic given what's happening today as we rattle away today but certainly in 2021 the wind did not blow uh, as it would normally be expected to but they still generated a huge amount of electricity in the particular year. It's worth noting, actually, um, the Renewables Infrastructure Group is a kind of hybrid wind and solar investment portfolio. They do have up to 20% in other assets as well. And the portfolio itself was valued at $2.73 billion at the end of last year. And in fact, they raised additional capital of $440 million through the year as they traded on an average premium or certainly through the issuance of 7.7%. So that one very much in demand, and we'll come back and talk about that in a second. And then just quickly pick up on Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF, which is uh, primarily invests in solar power, as its name suggests. What was their story? Yep, so this is again a Q4 update. Their NAV at the end of last year came in at 104 spot 4p. That was up 1.3% from the end of September. And again, same story coming through. It was basically changes to inflation assumptions, power purchase agreements, uplifts, and increasing power price forecast assumptions. So these were all positive factors. They've also declared an interim dividend of one spot seven nine p. And this fund has also grown quite a lot as well. Its gross assets now sit at almost one point one billion. Although that does include quite a substantial amount of gearing. That's at forty four percent of gross asset value, and also quite busy on the portfolio activity front. And they gave us uh, an update of that. But they're um, still, one would imagine, ambitious to grow the fund. They've got a pipeline of £300 million of international solar assets, UK energy storage assets, and also co-investment opportunities. So if we look back over these three, uh, they're all broadly in the same sector, but they're doing different things, different mixes. So can we compare the ratings and then the yields on these three and then perhaps try to make some sense of why they differ as they do? That's right. So TRIG, or the Renewables Infrastructure Group, that's trading out on probably a premium of about uh, 17% at the moment. So that's got the highest premium rating, and it's a very large fund. So I mentioned the size of its investment portfolio. In market cap terms, it's probably about $2.9 billion now and has a yield of 5.2% on a historic basis. So one of the largest constituents of that subsector. JLEN, Environmental Assets, that's also trading on a premium, probably about 7% or so. And its yield, again, on a historic basis is 6.4%, so higher than the weighted average yield in that renewable energy infrastructure subsector, which will probably come in about 5%. Next Energy Solar, I've got it on a, just a small discount or so at the moment, probably about 2%. Again, it's quite a decent size vehicle, a market cap of over 590 million. And actually, of the three that we're talking about now, it has the highest yield on a historic basis, 7.1%. So I guess there's two things to say, really. One is that there's obviously quite a lot of moving parts, particularly at the moment where we've seen quite strong commodity prices on the one hand, power prices on, on the one hand, and we're also seeing the risk of higher bond yields, which will presumably uh, have an impact as well. So there's quite a lot of moving parts, and these things are perhaps proving to be a little bit more volatile than you might expect when they were originally launched. But um, that's quite a wide range, though, isn't it? I mean, in discounts between 2% discount and 70% premium, and a 5.3% yield and a 7.1% yield. What's really driving that? I mean, people must think that the prospects for TRIG, for example, are significantly better than uh, those for the uh, Next Energy Solar. That would seem to be the implication. Do you think that's justified, or is that just perhaps uh, this is kind of investor preferences emerging? I think TRIG has the advantage of being, as I mentioned, one of the largest investment companies in this space, probably Greencoat uh, UK Win that we talked about on a number of occasions, just slightly ahead of it. But it's certainly a very substantial fund. And I think that kind of creates its own 
uh, gravity and following. And, uh, you know, it's been successful in terms of growing its dividend as well. I think in the case of the solar funds, and we, we, you know, we talked about this relatively recently, I think, that the solar funds, the ratings on those funds are weaker than the general renewable energy infrastructure peer group. Not to get too carried away, but, you know, Foresight Solar, I've got it on about a 4% discount. Next Energy Solar, 2% discount. US Solar, which is, again, slightly different, as the name would suggest, that's on a little bit of a discount. Bluefield Solar, I do have on a premium rating, but as a kind of a subsector of a subsector, they're certainly uh, less in favour, you would imagine, given those ratings. So, you know, I think people have a preference for those uh, investment companies that have a more diversified portfolio, which is the case for JLEN and obviously for, for Trig as well. And also wind seems to, despite the fact that we saw less wind in 2021, obviously people perhaps thought 2022 are going to make up for it. And they might be right, given today's evidence. I guess the other argument that Trig could make is that they're Actual performance has been uh, slightly better, has it, in uh, terms, certainly in share price terms, but that may be to do with the premium. But uh, in NAV terms, is there much to choose between them? No, it's a good point. So, I mean, you look at the five-year NAV total return numbers for Trig, that's coming in at 54% or so at the moment. You know, looking at the peer group, that would certainly be towards the top for those investment companies that do have a five-year track record. Obviously, not all of them have been launched and been up and running that long. It's worth noting Greencoat UK Wind on an NAV five-year total return numbers. They're coming in at uh, 65%, so a little bit ahead of Trig. But then that's a focus fund, a pure play on wind. I'm just trying to look at uh, the average for what it's worth. Weighted average performance over five years is 52%. Yeah. So anyway, there's something for everybody, I suppose, we could say about that collection. Okay, finally, then we've come to the end of our results. So just one little final update. A trust that we talked about a lot last year. This is Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH. Probably worth recording what they had to say this week. Yeah, that's right. So this week they announced that Fitch Ratings had affirmed their existing investment grade rating. So it's a a single A rated senior secured. And actually the long-term issuer default is is A negative with a stable outlook. So what does it mean? Well, actually that's a pretty reasonable rating to get from a credit agency. And they gave some detail in terms of the Fitch report, uh, highlighting the net debt EBITDA or profits ratio was uh, under eight times and the interest covers around five times. And they also made some comments in terms of Civitas's kind of business model in terms of providing long-term contracts and provision of care for longer living or being part of that process at least. So, you know, why is this important? And, and it's worth noting that it's not the only property uh, investment company that periodically will tell the market what its credit rating is. But I think in the case of Civitas, because of what's happened over the last six months or so, this becomes more pertinent. And the fact that they've actually been able to hold that investment grade rating. Yes. And obviously, because of the uh, short seller attack last year and the issue around the regulatory status of some of the housing associations they deal with. uh, But uh, the market still doesn't like this one much, does it? No. Well, put it this way. The share price has weakened this year. I mean, it's NAV on my screen. This is um, 107 spot 4P. And yet it's trading on about an 86, 87P share price that gives it a discount of about 19 percent and we have seen it derated in recent weeks i think it's touched lows of 86p uh, on an intraday basis so we've certainly seen the share price weaken again yeah and that's uh, that will be a disappointment to them i'm sure uh, given they've been making efforts to try and correct what they see as the damage that was being done by the short seller coming in and uh, preventing them expanding any further 
Well, we'll have to watch that one as well. Obviously, at some point, they'll become good value, you'd think, if they continue at this rate, but uh, too early to say that, maybe. Who knows? So that brings us to the end of a very windy podcast uh, recording. I do apologize again for the sounds off, the backstage noises, which are genuinely down to the wind. And as Simon made the point, we... Uh, we seem to be making up for the, for the shortfall we had last year. It would be nice to have a bit more sun as well, probably. But uh, anyway, that's where we are this week. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. Uh, if we believe what the uh, Americans were saying, you know, next week could determine whether or not the Russians are going to do something militarily in Ukraine. And that will be uh, obviously be an interesting talking point and uh, perhaps an anxious moment. But until then, thank you all for listening. And we'll look forward to uh, talking to you again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.